ladies. How you doing? I hope better than I'm doing. I'm, uh, I'm sorry that you have to listen to me today. Hopefully what I say will compensate for how I sound. Uh, but I am delighted to be here with you this morning, and we're going to have a lot of fun. Um, I brought a special guest with me this morning. I am so very grateful for spring break, uh, for Hope College's spring break, because my daughter Katie is here with me this morning. This actually, as you know, uh, is the second to last time that I will be teaching on tu in Tuesday morning Bible study. This is the first time that she's heard me teach in Tuesday morning Bible study, so I'm grateful that she had, the, had this opportunity before I retire. <laughs> that sounds weird, but before I... Uh, before I'm no longer doing this. So we're going to have a different morning, and you probably figured that out when you walked in here this morning. We're going to have the opportunity at the end of our time together to celebrate communion together, which really seems fitting, considering that that's what we've studied this week, uh, the Last Supper, what we would call the Lord's Supper. And, uh, and as we come toward the end of our semester as well, that uh, this will give us an opportunity to, to share in uh, corporately in that, uh, beautiful, beautiful act of taking communion together. So we'll be doing that. So the, the lecture is going to be significantly shorter today. I know you're probably laughing in your head, but it really is. You'll probably notice the notes are shorter. Uh, so it really will be. So if you do have an, a question, please ask it. This would be a perfect time to do that. Do you have any questions for me? <clears throat> no questions. Okay, let's pray. Father God, thank you so much for this morning. Thank you uh, for each of these ladies. Father, I pray um, for those uh, who are at home with sick babies or are sick themselves. I pray that you would heal them um, and allow them to return to us. And, and just thank you for your word and for this beautiful 72-verse chapter of your word, Father, that has uh, been so meaningful to me, and I pray will be meaningful to each of these ladies here. I pray you'd bless what I have to say today. May they be your words and not mine. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Oh, yeah, you can ask a question. Of course you may. And that is a question that I will talk about next week. I will address that next week. I'm going to touch briefly on it, but I'm not going to I'm not going to go into that, but I will, I will talk about the separation from God thing uh, next week. You might be surprised, I don't know, uh, what I have to say. So Mark, chapters 14 and 15 of the Gospel of Mark describe the passion of Jesus Christ. Passion is the Greek word for, or not Greek, excuse me, Latin word for suffering. It comes from the Latin word for suffering. So it is discussing and it is describing the suffering of Jesus, uh, beginning just a few days before his death. The primary theme of chapter 14 is abandonment. Jesus will be left to suffer all alone. Even those closest to him will flee. He will be completely abandoned by those who pledged to die for him. And he will die for them alone. After the Last Supper, that defection uh, of all those close to, to Jesus happens very quickly. Jesus has just told them in, in the Last Supper, this is my body which is broken for you, my blood which will be shed for you, and within a matter of hours, they desert him. They betray him, 
they deny him, and they desert him. But we begin in chapter 14 in the first 11 verses with this, this beautiful um, uh, sacrifice of a woman that is part of another Markin sandwich, as we've seen before. The plotting and betrayal of the Sanhedrin and Judas surrounds this beautiful story of one woman's sacrifice for Jesus. Um, those who appear to be insiders are not. And she, who would appear to be an outsider, is in fact a true disciple. So we begin in verses 1 and 2 as uh, the Passover approaches for the Jews. Now the Passover and the festival of unleavened bread were only two days away. And the chief priests and the teachers of the law were scheming to arrest Jesus secretly and kill him. But not during the festival, they said, or the people may riot. So Passover was, is still today uh, an annual celebration of Israel's release from bondage in Egypt. Uh, the story that is told in Exodus in the Old Testament. It's kind of a two-for-one celebration because you have the Passover first and then you have this essentially week-long feast of unleavened bread. And the Passover celebrates when the angel of death passed over the Israelites and the firstborn of the Egyptians, uh, Egyptian families were all killed. And that was what uh, actually led to Pharaoh allowing them to go. And the Feast of Unleavened Bread is, uh, is what they celebrate, their, celebrates their hasty uh, retreat or their hasty leaving of, uh, of Egypt, their hasty flight from Egypt. So the, play, the Passover remembered the plague of the death of Egypt's firstborn, while the Feast of Unleavened Bread, which followed right after that, celebrated their flight from Egypt. So this plotting that is happening here by the religious leaders is happening on either Tuesday or Wednesday of what we call Holy Week as Christians. How ironic that these religious leaders would be plotting the death of Jesus while they are preparing to celebrate one of Israel's most holy festivals. Little do they know, says Walter Wink, little do they know that killing Jesus was, is like trying to destroy a dandelion seed head by blowing on it. It will only spread. These men think they are in control, but truly, they are not. And then, uh, the next thing we read about is this beautiful sacrifice of this woman. And it says, while Jesus was in Bethany reclining at the table in the home of Simon the leper, obviously a former leper that Jesus healed, Simon the leper, a woman came with an alabaster jar of very expensive perfume made of pure nard. She broke the jar and poured the perfume on his head. Some of those present were saying indignantly to one another, why this waste of perfume? It could have been sold for more than a year's wages and the money given to the poor. And they rebuked her harshly. Leave her alone, Jesus said. Why are you bothering her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. The poor you will always have with you and you can help them anytime you want. But you will not always have me. She did what she could. She poured perfume on my body beforehand to prepare for my burial. Truly, I tell you, wherever the gospel is preached throughout the world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. He was right about that last part, wasn't he? 
Um, so, so here's this woman, um, and, and she, she presents Jesus with this act of devotion. Outside of this act, the closest thing that Jesus receives as an expression of love during his passion is Judas' kiss. This is the only thing that comes close to expressing devotion for Jesus. And Jesus said she did what she could. Literally, that says what she had, she did. Which reminds us of earlier the woman with the two copper coins when it said she gave all she had. So too, this woman gives all that she has to Jesus. It is a picture of discipleship. That is what discipleship is. It is giving all that we are and all that we have to Jesus to do with what he wishes. There is also foreshadowing of Jesus' death in this passage because the woman breaks open the jar, which is something that can only be done once. And it it is a foreshadowing, that breaking of the jar is a foreshadowing of Jesus' broken body. And she pours the perfume on him, which foreshadows the costly pouring out of Jesus' blood. Now, what about Jesus' words, the poor you shall always have with you? Which is what I used to say to my mother after all my sisters would left, were, had left, and I would say, well, the poor you shall always have with you, because I live two houses away. Um, <laughs> But it sounds like he's being this, having this callous indifference toward the poor. What do you mean the poor you shall always have with you? That is not callous indifference on Jesus' part. Um, and, and we need to remember that uh, we need to keep the context in mind. Because the whole of Scripture and Jesus himself Teach us to provide for those in need. We've just gotten that out of Jesus' mouth a a, a chapter or two earlier. Uh, And over and over in Scripture, we are to care for those. We are to care for the poor. The context here is something completely different, something completely unique. This act could only be done at this time and in this way. It is, it is a specific act of devotion for a specific time. Jesus' words could not have been said by any other person at any other time. No one else could say, hey, you need to do this for me because the poor you will always have with you. Only Jesus at this time, in this place, for this purpose could say this. And in fact, his words to his disciples are probably a rebuke because you see, I don't think, they were, they, were, they were rebuking the woman for her use of her own resources. And I don't think Jesus want, they wanted Jesus to turn and rebuke them for rebuking her. I think he's kind of saying when he says you can help them anytime you want, he's saying why don't you put your money where your mouth is, um, as we would say. In fact, It's probably more than a rebuke than that. This is what Dr. Garland says of of, uh, his words. God admonished the Israelites that if they hardened their hearts, their eyes would become stingy and greed and selfishness consume them. There there, There would indeed be poor among them. 
Jesus' citation of Deuteronomy 15.11, which is what he is saying when he says, the poor you shall always have with you, then is perhaps not a candid perception about the way things are and always will be, but is a rebuke. If God's people were obedient to God, there would be no poor. The presence of the poor is an indictment of all. It is not enough to talk about what can be done for the poor by others. We need to take concrete actions ourselves. But those willing to take such actions are those who are ready to make radical sacrifices for Jesus, like this woman at Bethany was. So then the other part of the sandwich, the last part of the sandwich, are these verses on Judas's betrayal of Jesus, where it says, Then Judas Iscariot, one of the twelve, one of those closest to Jesus, went to the chief priests to betray Jesus to them. They were delighted to hear this and promised to give him money. So he watched for an opportunity to hand him over. What did Jesus say would happen to him? He would be handed over. Um, first to the Jews and then to the Gentiles. So one of the men closest to Jesus is willing to betray him, to hand him over using Jesus' own words. And the religious leaders, as they prepare to worship God in the holiest feast of Israel, are delighted to pay Judas for it. This is what Dr. Edwards says about this. Judas is not a victim of circumstances or a pawn dominated by greater forces. He is a sovereign moral agent who freely chooses evil in handing Jesus over. That word, the final part of the sandwich in verses 1 through 11, handing Jesus over, combines the two essential truths of Jesus' passion, the freely chosen evil of humanity and the overarching providence of God. Divine grace uses even human evil for its saving purposes. And aren't you glad that he does? Well, then we come to the Last Supper, and in verses 12 through 16, Jesus tells the disciples exactly what they're supposed to do, and they do exactly what he tells them to do. And this is a good thing, but it's not the last time this will happen where Jesus tells them what to do, what they will do, and they do it, and it won't always be positive. In fact, Jesus betrayed uh, predicts his betrayal at the beginning of the meal. When evening came, Jesus arrived with the twelve. While they were reclining at the table eating, he said, truly I tell you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. They were saddened, and one by one they said to him, surely you don't mean me. It is one of the twelve, he replied, one who dips bread into the bowl with me. The Son of Man will go just as it is written about him, but woe to that man who betrays the Son of Man. It would be better for him had he not been born. So Jesus predicts his betrayal. He will, he will be betrayed by one of those who is eating with him, by one of the twelve. The twelve, on their part, show no concern for Jesus' fate. He's just said, I'm going to be betrayed. And they're like, no, not saying, no, no, they're only concerned about themselves. They're only concerned about who the betrayer will be. And is it me? Surely not I, Lord. Um, and it is one who is eating with him. Table fellowship in Judaism is very important. Eating together was evidence of peace, trust, forgiveness, and brotherhood. One who is closest to Jesus will be his betrayer. 
one who is supposed to be a trusted brother will hand him over. And then on this night that he was betrayed, Jesus did this. While they were eating, Jesus took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples, saying, Take, this is my body. Then he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank from it. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many, he said to them. Truly, I tell you, I will not drink again from the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. So Jesus uh, here is, this is part of the Passover meal, which is called the Seder feast. It is celebrated today just as it was celebrated then, and it is celebrated every year. The elements are the same. The head of the family would take bread and he would recite this blessing. Blessed art thou, O Lord our God, creator of the universe, king of the universe, who causes bread to come forth from the earth. And Jesus may have said this very blessing uh, when he took the bread. But then he did something completely different and he changes it. And he connects the bread and then the wine to his passion, to his suffering, to his death. He says this, this is my body, which we hear uh, those words in Mark, but in the other uh, Gospels, we hear him say, this is my body, broken for you. What Jesus is saying is that what he suffers, he will suffer on their behalf. And then he takes the cup and he says, this, this is the blood of the covenant, poured out for many. And, and then he says, then Mark tells us that they all, drank from the cup. This is scandalous, by the way. It was forbidden in Judaism for Jews to eat or drink blood. <clears throat> Excuse me. Because, because it contained the very life of the creature. You could not eat or drink blood. And yet Jesus is using his own blood to connect them to the sacrifice that he will make. And he is saying that in some sense they will participate in that sacrifice. So what is Jesus saying in these words? He's saying several things. The first thing he's saying is that his death is the final sacrifice. No other sacrifice be made. It is complete. When Jesus says it is finished, it is finished. Nothing more be done. Animal sacrifice is no longer necessary. Secondly, he's saying that his body and blood will inaugurate a new covenant, a covenant that is heralded throughout the Old Testament. And finally, when, when it tells us that they all drank from it and they all ate the bread, they all ate and they all drank from one cup, it is saying that this act bound the disciples to Jesus and to one another. And so it does still today. Well, then they sing a hymn and they go to the Mount of Olives and Jesus tells them, you're going to all fall away. You're going to all desert me. And the... And the the disciples are shocked. They say, we won't do that. We won't abandon you. Jesus says that this will fulfill prophecy, and indeed it does. Zechariah 13, 7 uh, is the prophecy fulfilled. Indeed, much of what happens this night and in the day and days to follow are fulfillment of prophecy specifically from Zechariah 9, chapters 9 through 14. Uh, and, and he says, you will all fall away. But there is, there is hope in this because he says, I will go ahead of you 
to Galilee. And what he means by that is he will resume after he rises his shepherding role of them. He will continue to be with them in spirit. But Peter, being Peter, jumps out again and says, I won't abandon you. There's no way I'll abandon you. I'd never abandon you. Even if I have to die, I will stay by your side. Foolish, foolish Peter. He and the others believe they have the strength to stay and fight, but they don't. They can't have that yet. It is an egoistic faith in self-sufficiency. They do not realize yet their own weakness, nor do they realize that we have a God who specializes in using what is weak to display his power. And Jesus makes another prediction specifically for Peter. He says, Peter, before the cock crows two times, you will deny me three times. He who made that solemn vow will deny his Lord three times. Well, the hour arrives, the hour of, um, of darkness, the hour of his suffering arrives, and, and Jesus prays this agonizing prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane. They went to a place called Gethsemane, and Jesus said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. He took Peter, James, and John along with him, and he began to be deeply distressed and troubled. My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death, he said to them. Stay here and keep watch. Going a little farther, he fell to the ground. And in the, in the other um, Gospels we learn, and, and what this wording means is he fell face down on the ground. He is in, he is in deep distress. Distress. He fell to the ground and prayed that if possible, the hour might pass from him. Abba, Father, meaning Daddy, Father, he said, everything is possible for you. Take this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. So why was Jesus so troubled? He's talked about his death for quite some time, very matter-of-factly. This is what's going to happen. This is what I'm going, going to do. And all of a sudden, it's like he's backing away from it. He's asking for an escape clause. Well, the type of death he knew he would suffer, I think, would be enough to put some grief into any human being. Um, and Jesus was human. But I think there's more to it than that. Some say that he knew that God would turn away from him as he hung on the cross bearing the sin of all humanity. And he dreaded that, that break in communication, that break in relationship as God forsook him. And Jesus dreaded that. And that may be, but we'll talk about that next week uh, when we talk about Jesus' crucifixion. Here's what I think. Mostly, I think it was the specter of being the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the whole world. Jesus literally had the weight of the world's sin on his shoulders. And the fact that he shrank from that for a moment only adds to the greatness of his sacrifice. So he asks for another way, if possible, another solution. But there isn't one. This is the only way. So Jesus submits to his Father's will and all that that means for him, and all that it means for us as well. 
Well, he comes back to find his sleeping giants who will do anything for him, even die for him. They can't stay awake for him, but they will die for him. He finds Peter, James, and John sleeping. They've been told to keep watch and to be alert, but these men who claim that they would die for Jesus can't even stay awake for a little while. And then in verses 43 to 52, Jesus is arrested. <clears throat> they had a little change of plans, the leaders, because remember they weren't, back in the first couple verses of, of this chapter, they weren't going to arrest him during the feast because the people might revolt. And then this opportune moment never Never, uh, you know, always take advantage of a good crisis. So uh, they, they needed to take advantage of this offer that Judas gave them. So they've changed their plans. New plan. We'll arrest him during the feast. At night. So the people won't know. So the people won't revolt. So Judas', Judas willingness to hand over Jesus caused them to rethink their plans. And, and they send a cohort of soldiers, which is hundreds of soldiers, and representatives of the Sanhedrin, along with them, to arrest an unarmed rabbi. All that, just to arrest Jesus. And they were being led by Judas. And we're told, as we all know, that Judas betrayed Jesus with a kiss. That word for kiss means an affectionate kiss of brotherhood. That is beyond ironic. Scripture is fulfilled, Jesus says, when he says, you've come after me with all these armed guards. I've been in the temple every day. You could have arrested me then. He says, but Scripture is being fulfilled. And then it says, they all fled. Every one of them. A pledge to stay with him fled. Uh, and he was abandoned. And indeed, Scripture was fulfilled. Not just Zechariah 13, but a whole range of Scriptures will be fulfilled in what comes next. And then just briefly on Jesus' trial, which nearly every aspect of it was illegal. Um, I just learned this week that uh, when, uh, when someone came before trial, they were supposed to have a defense first, and then people were to speak uh, against them. Did you get any defense? Nothing. It was at night. There's all kinds of illegalities that take place here. Um, but again, Scripture is being fulfilled. And it says that people gave false testimony, conflicting false testimony about him. And, and they said that he, he claimed that he would destroy the temple and then build it back again. And, and why is that false testimony? It sounds pretty similar to something he did say. Well, what they are saying in this false testimony is Jesus claimed to be Messiah. He made a claim to be Messiah because it was widely believed that Messiah would come and build a new temple, a physical temple in Jerusalem. But it's false in part because Jesus never claimed that he would build another physical temple. In fact, his claim was that the time of the physical temple was over and the time for animal sacrifice was done. It was coming to an end. Now, the high priest makes the connection with what they're saying, that he's claiming to be Messiah, because he turns to Jesus and he says to him directly, are you the Messiah? Are you the Son of God? He doesn't actually say Son of God because pious Jews, which of course he was, pious Jews wouldn't say the name of God. So when he says, are you the Son of the Blessed One, he is saying, are you the Son of God? 
And Jesus answers with more than a yes. He says, I am. We've heard those words before from his mouth, haven't we? Ego, I, me. He doesn't just say yes. He says, yes, I am. I am. I am God. And he says, you will see me at God's right hand, which was a position of honor, coming on the clouds with power. All are things that only God can say and do. And Jesus is claiming them for himself. And they go nuts. Now, part of that might have been for show, to try and get everybody riled up to get a, a conviction. Um, but they, they go nuts. And Jesus' suffering begins at the hands of religious leaders as they strike him and they blindfold him and they spit on him and they say, prophesy! Who hit you? He just did prophesy. He just told you who he is. They are blind. And then at the end, we have Peter's denial. And I just want to give you two lessons that we can take from this. The first is, don't be too hard on Peter. Not just because I like Peter. But that could be any of us. That could be me. I am capable of that. We all are. But there is also hope for all of us. Because you see, Mark's readers knew the rest of Peter's story. And they knew that he was restored. And they knew he became a giant. And they knew he did die for Jesus. Peter's story underscores the need for all of us to keep watch and to be alert in our spiritual lives. Well, I think it seems fitting that as we come to this, um, toward the end of this study, 